Will you turn with me now in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And our verse will be, our text will be verse 14 through 16. 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. Will you stand with me now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You may be seated. Imagine this morning that each of us here has some sense about compliments how to receive one, what a genuine one seems like or sounds like or comes across like. If you're a sharp dresser, perhaps somebody doesn't just say you dress nice, but you really know how to match your shoes and your belt. Or or if you've cooked a nice meal for somebody and they say to you, not just that it was a, is a good meal, but they say, you know, you made those mashed potatoes just like I like them. Buttery, soft, and light. You see, when somebody receives that kind of a compliment, they're not left wondering how to take it. They, they understand and they discern the genuineness in it. Because the compliment and the note of praise is is connected to something that you can put your hands on, right? It's called, and there's a theory behind it, and it's uh, flowing from the the field of behavior modification, behavior-specific praise. It's when you connect praise, thanksgiving, or a compliment to something tangible, an action that the recipient can connect to. Well, this morning, we're not interested in behavior modification theory per se. What we want to know here is that the apostle, as he gives thanks over the Thessalonians, he does exactly what we're talking about here as he connects thanksgiving, this compliment of the Thessalonians, to something specific about the behavior And you can see the connection of ideas here in verse 14. He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God. Notice now that he is thinking in terms of specific action. And of course, we know that what we're reading here in verse 14 is connected to a compliment or to thanksgiving or to praise because the apostle begins, verse 13, with that very language. For this reason, we constantly thank God. 
Verse 14 simply continues that. He, he's, he's returning now to thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. We said it's something peculiar about this letter that Paul's thanks is, is spread out in a bunch of different patches over the course of three chapters. But, but what he does here is he gives thanks over them. And, and now he's giving thanks for something very specific, as he has in verse 13. He's giving thanks for their imitation. He's giving thanks for the way they imitated other churches. And uh, what we want to think about this morning is obviously the imitation that he gives thanks for. But, but what we want to do is connect that, that pattern of behavior, that righteous, godly, praiseworthy behavior to its source. You know what the source is? The source of it is the powerful work of God's Word in them. Notice your last clause in verse 13 which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, we spent an entire message last week looking at that verse 13 as we noticed how the Apostle Paul gave thanks over them for the power of the Word of God at work among them and how they received the Word of God for what it really was. They had received it as the Word of God. They heard it. They accepted it. They discerned its marks of divinity. And we spent just a little bit of time talking about the power of the Word of God, this inherent power that it has as it works in the hearts of believers. Now as you come into verse 14, what the Apostle Paul does is say, I want to give you a specific example of how the Word of God is at work in you. It has this empowering quality. And he picks this as an illustration of how the word empowers. It enables the believer to bear up under the circumstances of the greatest difficulty. That's what we want to think about. The enabling power of the word of God. And the specific example of that enabling power is how it sustains the believer in circumstances and seasons of suffering. And, and we can draw from that a broader principle about the power of the Word of God to sustain you in the, in the deepest, darkest difficulties of life. And there's a couple of things that make this illustration of the power of the Word at work very powerful for us this morning. And that is the people who persecuted them, their own country, and the fierceness of their opponents, which is expounded for us in, in verse 15 and 16. You see, when we take both of those things together, we begin to see just how powerful this Word of God is as it works in us. And we're going to rejoice in that and, and give thanks for it and be encouraged by it. So what we do this morning is we see our main point here is how the Word empowers us in the midst of intense hardship. And we're going to unfold that under a couple of points. The intensity of the imitation and the nature of the oppressors, the intensity of the imitation and the nature 
of the oppressor. So let's come into our text and take up that first point in verse 14, the intensity of the imitation. And you see it for yourself in verse 14, for you became imitators of the churches. And I want to zero in on that word, imitators. I think we all discern this morning the meaning of the term imitation, but if I could just take a moment here to walk us back into the depths of, uh, of uh, uh, Greek history for a moment to think about where this word comes from. It's interesting that this word comes from imitating animals. If you were to find as far back as you go in the Greek language, deep into centuries before Christ, and the first uses of this language in Greek, it would refer to humans acting like animals or, or imitating the patterns of behavior and sounds of animals. Uh, later, it began to be used in the world of theater and drama to, to describe how actors uh, personified other people. Then moving closer to how the Apostle is using it here, it began to be used by the Greek uh, ethical philosophers to describe the process of teaching somebody good values. So, so what they would say is that if you, if you want to be a good citizen, what you should do is, is spend time around people who are known for their virtue. Because the thought was that'll rub off the, the good behavior, the morals, and the ethical patterns of behavior will rub off. And you'll imitate, you'll mimic that behavior. Well, the apostle is using the word imitation here in, in, a, in a sense sort of like that because he's speaking here of behavior, and not just behavior, but commendable behavior. He says, you are imitators of the churches, and this is positive, and the precise imitation is this, for you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. The particular thing that the apostle was saying they imitated was so commendable is they endured sufferings for Jesus Christ. They endured sufferings for Jesus Christ and the gospel. You see, the apostle is saying they weren't seeking it. They, they, they didn't go out uh, doors and try to find uh, some altercation they could get into and say, well, it was all for the sake of Christ. They, they weren't putting themselves in harm's way. No, uh, what the apostle was saying, he says, you became, it came upon them. Much of that has to do with the very circumstances of their reception of the gospel. They weren't seeking after Christ. They were steeped in false religion. And then this apostle and preacher came to town. He proclaimed Christ to them that turned their lives upside down. And when that happened, sufferings came. So let's think about this here. He sets up a comparison here. He says they have suffered, and he says their suffering is like the suffering of somebody else, and the suffering of somebody else here is the Judean churches. So let's look at the whole clause now. You, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So let's think about that. In Judea, it's a, it's a Greco-Roman term for that whole vast stretch of, of land around Jerusalem that would stretch over to the Dead Sea and, and back over here to the Mediterranean, then over to the desert and as far as Caesarea. It was, a, it was a good chunk of land. It would include Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria. 
But you see, um, this really points us back to the beginning of the history of the Christian church. All of the Christian churches in the world trace their origin to Jerusalem, right? To, To those 12 disciples and that band of disciples in the upper room who prayed together and who on Pentecost uh, felt the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the church began to grow by leaps and bounds, 3,000, 5,000, 7,000, and thousands more. And then it it spread out of Jerusalem and beyond. It's those churches, those who were Jews, who when the Spirit of God fell and the preaching of the Word began, they started turning to Christ. And I want you to notice here how these special churches are described. He says here, the churches of God. They are the churches of God. And that, that's not a throwaway line. There's different ways you could... Um, interpret that prepositional phrase of God. It it could mean owned by God. It could be a possessive quality. It could be uh, qualitative, meaning that they bear divine qualities. It it could mean source. They, They find their origin from God. I don't think we need to draw too sharp of a separation between any of those options, by the way. It's true that they are owned by God because of the blood of Christ. It's true they bear divine qualities because they've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. It's true that their source and origin is from God because the Spirit of God took the gospel of God and changed them. So in every way, when you think about these various options of God, you can see it's a critical qualifier They had been in covenant with God as Jews for hundreds of thousands of years. And now with the coming of Jesus Christ, one thing the apostle is saying, they have not left God. They're of God. And the other thing that he says here, even more specifically, they are in Christ Jesus. In other words, what he is saying is that through faith they have been united into Christ It means that they look at Jesus Christ, Jesus the Nazarene, and they view Him as the Messiah. They regard Him as that great promised Messiah, the great hope of Israel. That they are united with Him in all of His treasures and gifts and grace. And so as the Apostle describes these churches, he's describing them, I I would argue, in some of the most exalted language you can think of because he's trying to communicate a lesson about them. Their sufferings were not for rebellion. Their sufferings were not account of something they did wrong. Their sufferings were as those who were owned by God and kept in the Lord Jesus Christ and identifying with the Messiah. And yet... What does the apostle say? They suffered. These churches suffered. You know, if you look at the book of Acts, as we have done an extensive sermon series over the last few years, we saw some of those sufferings. We, we, could, we could turn to different times in the, in the history of that uh, embryonic, uh, growing church movement, Peter and John, and so forth. 
but but I, I think if I were to look at the book of Acts and spotlight a particular time and season that really stands out, the apostle may have in mind here is the suffering that happened when Stephen was stoned. Because here's what the Word of God says. On that day, that is the day of Stephen's stoning, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered. And then it goes on in verse 3 to say, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. And then how about add to that in Acts 9 verse 1, Luke referring to the Apostle Paul before his conversion says, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. If you want to think of any season of intense persecution of this church in Judea, this would probably be it, or foremost in Paul's mind. And ironically, Paul himself had a hand in that season of suffering. He says, that's what I'm referring to as as an example, a model of your behavior of imitation. They suffered mightily. Paul breathing out threats of murder. They suffered unto death. But here's what makes the suffering even more intensely painful. He says, you endured at the hands of your own countrymen. You see, Judea is referring to to, to Jewish people by culture and race. And so when he refers to their own countrymen, he's definitely referring to fellow Jews, just those who refuse to believe in Christ as Messiah. But, But think about the aggravation of the suffering that's in view here. Because he says you suffered at the hands of your own countrymen. He means that you suffered at the hands of your next door neighbors. You you suffered at the hands, perhaps even of your own family members and and people you grew up with at synagogue. People who you once regarded as godly people. People who were in covenant with the Lord. People to whom the oracles and the writings of God had been entrusted. People who said they all shared the same hope of Christ Messiah. And yet when Jesus Christ came and He unveiled Himself as the Son of God incarnate and their Redeemer, they turned on Him. We're going to get into more of that story in our second point. But what intensifies the sufferings is that the sufferings were at the hands of their own countrymen. And Paul looks at that and he says, it was an ugly thing that happened. It was a painful thing that happened. Now, Paul looks at that and he says, that's just like what happened to you. I want you to look in the middle of verse 14 and you'll see that important word for. He says, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea for you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. So here, the Apostle Paul is saying, whatever happened to them is what happened to you. It's similar. You see, 
you both suffered. It reminds us of what the apostles already said back in chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. This is what's so uh, deeply engaging about the story of the Thessalonians. I've told you before, this perhaps is my favorite church in the New Testament. Because uh, it's so new to them. Everything about Christ and Christianity and the Lord is all so new. And and, uh, it just turned their lives inside out and upside down. And here, all of a sudden, in in just really literally the, the blinking of an eye, everything that they have known about religion and and truth changed. And yet, in that moment, it also became the, the moment of greatest crisis for them. Sufferings, tribulation, affliction, everything was now hard that used to be easy. We know about the story of it. We're told that some unbelieving Jews gathered up roughnecks in the marketplace and they caused a great storm and mob and flurry of activity and the result were some were dragged before the magistrate. They were penalized financially. They had to deposit a large sum of money with the magistrates to say that they wouldn't be disturbers of the peace now that they were Christians. But you look at all that. You, you see, this is what's so engaging about these people. They, they accepted all of this. And, and the apostles said they, they, they became imitators and they endured it. And they didn't just grind their teeth down, but he says they did it with joy. Now, there must have been more examples and instances of suffering because Paul is going to allude to their sufferings and tribulation again. And it gives us the sense that it happened repeatedly to them. We don't know all of what it was, but imagine if you lost all of your family overnight. Not that they died, but they hated you. They refused to talk to you. All of your aunts and uncles and cousins. When you went outside uh, uh, to pull your car out of the garage, the neighbors scowled when they looked at you. When you went to the grocery store and all the people who know your name at the checkout stand scowl at you. And when you go to work, everybody takes your tools and messes up your workplace spot and spreads rumors about you and tries to get you fired because they all hate you because of Christ. That's probably at least the bare minimum is what is in view, if not physical torment as a part of the persecution. That's what's in view here, as the Apostle says in verse 14. They didn't just suffer like the churches in Judea did. You suffered at the hands of your own countrymen. You suffered at the hands of your own countrymen. Calvin brings out a point here that even amplifies it just a step further. Because 
We know from Acts 17 and Luke's narrative of, of the initial history of the tribulation and suffering of these believers that it included Jews and unbelieving ones. And, and so if you go on into verse 15 and 16, you can see that the apostle here is going to zero in on unbelieving Jews and their tendencies and behaviors towards these early Christians. And so what Calvin uh, seizes on, I I think, is of some interest to us because it helps us understand the intensity of this suffering at the hands of their countrymen, at least those who were Jews. As he says this, he provides against the dangerous temptation which might harass them because they endured grievous troubles from that nation which was the only one in the world that glorified the name of God. Do you you sense what stood in the way of this endurance? Here they have been told by the Apostle Paul that their coming to Christ meant that they were coming to the one and only true and living God. And it just so happens that that one true and living God is the very same Lord who revealed Himself to Israel, who all of the Jews throughout the earth professed to believe in. And so now as they come to this faith in the Lord through Jesus Christ, His only Son, whom the Jews rejected, Calvin is saying one of the things that stood in the way of persisting in this faith, uh, one obstacle was that they were encountering the fiercest of opposition from the very people who claimed the name of the Lord. Can you imagine how that must have been so perplexing? They had a false profession of the Lord because they didn't receive God's revelation in Jesus Christ. But in so many ways, it sounded similar. And so here they are being harassed externally, but but internally there's doubts and there's concerns. Why am I enduring all of this tribulation and suffering if I'm really not even following the true God in the right way? Wouldn't that undermine your faith? Wouldn't you ask yourself, as you, as you sat there and you counted up all of the costs of following Christ, is it, ooh, what if it's not even the right one? It's hard enough to be a Christian who really professes the truth. But what if you always had the gnawing anxiety that you didn't really know it was? And yet you're suffering mightily for it. Calvin says one of the reasons why Paul draws this comparison between themselves and those churches in Judea is because he's saying this is not unique to you. Those Jews in Judea who were churches of God in Christ Jesus, had the name Jew. They had every right to claim that for themselves. But they were true. Because their faith was in the Christ, who was always the hope of the promise given to Israel. 
So one of the things he is doing by making this comparison is saying unto them, you don't have to doubt the certainty and the truth of your confession because you are suffering at the hands of unbelieving Jews. Because to be a true Jew is to be one who believes in Christ, that Jesus is the Lord's Christ and Messiah. And so he seeks to ground them in conviction. But what's our broader point here? Paul cites this endurance and imitation as an example of the power of the Word of God at work. Before we move on to our second point, and we think a little bit further about the nature of their opponents, we think, first of all, about a duty that we see here. We learn about a duty that we see here as we hear about the apostle giving them behavior-specific praise. They persevered in their imitation in the midst of sufferings because they knew this was God's calling and the Word of God sustained them in that. Matthew Henry says, The cross is the Christian's mark. The cross is the Christian's mark. You see, and somehow these Thessalonican believers embraced that message. They never heard it directly from the lips of Christ. Remember the great crowning mark of the disciple. Jesus himself speaks this word. He says, he or she who would be my disciple must. What? Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The cross is the Christian's mark because Christ assigned it. The duty that we have in Jesus Christ, the duty we have as believers is to do what the Apostle Paul himself says when he says in Philippians 1.29, it has not only been granted to you to believe, but also to suffer for Christ's sake. Oh, I I know that you didn't want to come here this morning and hear the unsavoriness of that message because it's not one that's very complimentary to our materialistic world. I don't see anyone out there selling Christianity in the packaging of you've been called to suffer for Christ's sake. We don't want to seek it. We don't have to chase it. We don't have to pray for it to come. But the reality is it does come when the believer does what Christ calls the disciple to. To deny themselves and to take up his cross. I want you to know, people of God, if you suffer for Christ's sake in the week ahead, there will be strength for you. As much as you don't want that to come upon you, I want you to know for your encouragement that there is a way to endure it. 
And that's not in yourself. It's through what Paul says here. The Word that performs its work. We have the calling of the believer to manifest their discipleship through enduring this mark of the cross on themselves. And we have the means spoken of so clearly here. The Word which performs its work in you who believe. I want you again to glance down at your text and note for yourself the connection between the texts. The very last part of verse 13, the Word of God which also works in you who believe, for you became imitators. There's a very clear, explicit, and obvious connection in our text today. And that connection is this. This is an example of how the Word of God performs and unleashes its power in you as a believer. It sustains you. I'm reminded this morning of that great parable we've thought so, uh, about so repeatedly uh, in the near past from Mark 4, the sower, uh, the parable of the sower and the, and the various kinds of soils. And we've mentioned so many times about the various kinds. And, and Jesus speaks there of the rocky road hearer. Remember? The rocky road hearer. The, the one who seemingly receives the Word of God with joy, and immediately it seems like green shoots of grace fruit spring up in their life. Yet, as the Word of God says, when persecution and affliction arise because of the Word, they fall away. Why does that happen? Why does a person fall away from Christ? Why do they fall away from their profession? Jesus says, because the Word didn't take root. The Word didn't take root. People of God, this morning what we're learning here is about the Word that does take root and what happens when that Word does take root. It empowers you. And we've already said that one of the things that we want to say here is an application from our passage because I believe that we're well entitled to make this application and we just sort of sneak it in here now even for a moment that if Paul can say that the believer can endure this kind of intense hardship because the Word is empowering them, You are entitled to believe this morning that this Word of God will sustain you in any kind of intense hardship. Plant that seed in your mind this morning to to help you warm up to this idea of the power of the Word of God so that you'll cry out for an appetite for this Word. That you'll ask God to to stoke the embers of faith in your heart, to, to fan them into a flame, that you will seek this Word. You will long to devour this Word and to meditate on this Word and to read this Word, to receive this Word, because this Word alone is what will strengthen you through your seasons of difficulty. There's nothing like this Word. It's a powerful Word, and it works. It works in you who believe. 
Let's come on to our second point now, the nature of the oppressors, because this really amplifies the theme we're working with here, is that the word of power at work in us sustains us in the midst of the intensest of difficulties. We've seen how it sustains and enduring sufferings, and I want to take just a different angle on all this now as we come into verse 15, because what Paul does in verse 15 and 16 is amplify the nature of the opposition that was behind their suffering. And through that, he he shows us just how powerful this word is because it can help us withstand these kinds of opponents of Christ. And what he does here in verses 15 and 16 is give us five qualities of these unbelieving Jews who were attacking and persecuting the people of God. And all five of them taken together give us a very powerful picture, really, of the opposition against Christ and against you. Many of them we could take and probably do a whole sermon on if we wanted to. We're not going to this morning. But um, they're pretty deep in terms of their conceptions. And the the first one really is quite powerful all to itself. They killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. You see here, Paul is trying to help unfold what it means to be persecuted by by the countrymen, by, by the unbelieving Jewers. And he's saying, this is how rapidly violent they are. They killed Jesus and the prophets. Now, you could take that one phrase, they killed Jesus, and have at least an entire sermon on that one alone, perhaps more. And we would walk away apologizing for not having said everything we could say or should say. So forgive me for not being able to say everything at once here. But let me just say this much, though. That when you read this word, kill Jesus, it, it's not an anti-Semitic screed. It, it's not some sort of warrant to engage in anti-Semitism and hate. Paul isn't doing that. He is appealing to an historical fact. and The apostle is well aware that the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem did not pick up hammer and nail and drive those spikes through Jesus' hands and feet. That's not what he's saying. But what he is appealing to is what we know from the Gospels and Acts. You'll remember on this night when Jesus was betrayed and handed over and He'd been interrogated by by Pilate. Matthew 27 speaks of this particularly, that that He couldn't find a reason to put Jesus to death. So so He came to uh, the Jews, the crowd that was gathered and assembled out there in the court, and, and the Word says that, It was the regular practice of the Roman at the time of Passover to release a prisoner to the crowd. I said, can we give you this Jesus? Can I release this? Because Pilate was haunted by the specter of putting him to death. You know what the Jews said that night? They shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. And they demanded a robber and a murderer be given back to them in the place of Christ. And then they said, let his blood be upon us and our children. 
You see, the apostle was well aware of the fact that Jesus Christ was executed under Pontius Pilate and Roman rule. He's not disputing that. He is assigning culpability, responsibility to the Jews who, when they were given option, refused to accept his release and demanded his execution. And they willingly received blood upon themselves. And this is why you read of this in Acts. Peter in Acts 2 says, you nailed him to the cross and put him to death. And we read in Acts 3.15 that they put to death the prince of life. And in Acts 4.10, uh, they spoke of the name Jesus Christ whom you crucified. And again, in Acts 5.30, you put him to death, that is Jesus, by hanging him on the cross. You see, Paul can speak this way, although it's irregular of Paul, he can speak this way because there is a moral responsibility on their account. You killed Jesus. But he elaborates on that. He says, you killed the prophets. And notice that's in the plural here. Not just one. But you killed the prophets. And this, this continues a theme that Jesus even spoke of in his preaching to, to the Jews in his day. Do you remember that parable of the vineyard owner? Jesus spoke of a, a man who owned a vineyard and, and he planted a vineyard and he went away on a long trip. And when it was time for the harvest of the grapes, he sent back his slaves to make sure the harvest was going well. And what did the people who were working in the vineyard do? They killed each and every slave of the vineyard owner which was sent. And then the parable concludes when the vineyard owner sent his own son and they killed him too. The Jews who heard that knew exactly what Christ was speaking of. The long history of the heritage of the unbelief among Jews who in generation after another were violent towards the prophets whom God sent. And so Jesus himself accuses them, saying that the blood, they were sons of those who murdered the prophets. And he spoke of that long line which stretched from the blood of Abel all the way to the last prophet that was slain, which is recorded in the Old Testament scriptures, which is uh, Zechariah, son of Berechiah. You killed the prophets. This is in their DNA. This was their heritage. I want you to notice next, there's four more points. We just can't spend too much time on each, but, but notice Paul says uh, they drove us out. It's very likely a reference to what happened to the Apostle Paul. I can't weigh you down with many examples. I can remind you this morning that uh, essentially the day after the Apostle was converted to Christ, he began preaching, right? We're told that he spoke so zealously and so powerfully and confounded the Jews that they what? They sought to kill him. And the disciples in Damascus caught word of it and they lowered him through a hole in the wall in the middle of night to safety. 
we don't have time to think about what happened in Iconium, how in Lystra they whipped up a crowd against him and stoned him and left him for dead. Number three, he says they're not pleasing to God. This is just shorthand way of saying that they're not uh, true keepers of the law because Paul says in Romans 8, 8, that those who are in the mindset of the flesh uh, can't please God. They cannot obey His commandments. We're told they're hostile to all men. Uh, This is of some interest to us because if you look at historical records, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus says that um, toward every other people, they feel only hate and enmity and they sit apart at meals and they sleep apart. In other words, they didn't treat people in a very neighborly way. Instead, they accented their differences. I don't think that the Apostle, though, is speaking merely of their bad behavior, their bad manners towards their neighbors, their lack of civility towards others. What amplifies his statement is what begins at verse 16. Look at your Bible with me. He says, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. The particular way that the Apostle uh, puts his hand upon to show us what he means by them being hostile to all men, we know it because of the grammatical arrangement in the original, is this, they sought to hinder the preaching of the Word of God so that people would be saved. Paul says, you want to know what is hostility towards all men? Is seeking to gag the witness of the gospel. Seeking to prevent others from testifying about Christ to those who are lost, that they may be saved. That's hostility. To long to see the advancement of gospel proclamation and gospel witness stop to thwart it, to stand in the way of it, to oppose it. That's hostility to men. He says that's what characterized the nature of these opponents. Finally, you see the fifth characteristic. They always fill up the measure of their sins. It's a result clause. Paul says the result of all of these behaviors is this. Their sins fill up the cup of God's wrath against them to the brim. Calvin uses the metaphor of a heap. He says all of these sins that have been outlined here sort of pile up in a heap. Like a a gigantic mountain peak which casts its shadow over everything below. It hovers over them. Their sins mount up against them and testify against them that what? Wrath is coming on account of their sins. We went through all of that, people of God, to show you this morning the nature of the opposition. And we went into the nature of the opposition because the Apostle commends them. He gives them behavior-specific compliment. 
in spite of all of this, in spite of the sufferings, in spite of the nature of the opponents you faced with all of their virulence and their violence and and their hatred for Christ and for you, what did you do? You persevered. You stood strong. You held your cross. How did you do that? The Word of God at work. Paul commends them and he gives thanks for the grace of God in Christ which has been showered upon them. They've been strengthened in their inward man. People of God, what do we take away from this text this morning for ourselves? As we hear this wonderful testimony of the power of the enabling word at work in the Thessalonians, this is the message for us. And one of the first things we take away from this text is really a word of warning as we, as we read about the nature of the opposition against these Thessalonians, these unbelieving Jews with these five qualities. One of the things that stands out in our thinking is that it never had to happen this way. The very people that brought the suffering and tribulation upon the churches of God in Christ were the very people who'd have the same message proclaimed to them. Think about it. They'd had one generation after the next of prophets given to them. They had John the Baptist sent to them, who in the days of Christ before his ministry sought to create a context for for the hearing of Christ's message by his preaching of the baptism of repentance. They had Jesus Christ himself. They had Jesus Christ Himself. who He went into the synagogues and the valleys and the mountaintops and He went to the beds of the sick and, and He talked to people who are suffering and He went to the banquets and He went to the feasts. Everywhere He went, He made Himself available. He brought the message of, of mercy and hope and of salvation to them. They had, the, they had the apostles speaking to them. They heard all these disciples upon whom the Spirit fell, and they spoke the gospel in foreign languages. They had Stephen. They had the apostle Paul. They had witness after witness after witness. Speak the truth, and yet what did they do? They refused to mix faith with the hearing of the Word of God. I want you to look at the significant qualifier at the end of verse 13. The Word which performs its work in whom? You who believe. People of God, you have to mix faith with the hearing of the Word. Otherwise, it will go in one ear and out the other as it did to these unbelieving Jews. And instead of laying hold of the hope of life, the Word leaves the soul empty. I plead with you this morning as you hear, be sure that you're hearing God's Word with faith. You say, I don't have very much faith this morning, Pastor John. I, I say to you the same thing that Christ said. It doesn't matter if your faith is the, is the size of, a, of the mustard seed. Take whatever you have. 
and hear that word with faith and ask God to, to fan that spark into a flame. Otherwise, the word will be of no profit. But the other thing, and this is where I've wanted to, to just settle down with you as we conclude our message and as, as we walk away, I want us to take this very hope-filled message with us as we go. This profoundly powerful word of encouragement. The word of God is at work. It's powerful. It's enabling. It's invigorating. And what it does, as the Apostle says here, sustain the believer in seasons of intense difficulty. No one ever really wants the Word until they're desperate for it. No one ever hungers for the Word until their soul is gnawingly hungry for it. People tend not to come upon the Word with its promises and its wisdom and are desperate for it unless they really have something in their life that spurs them on towards it. And one of those things which is so natural to cultivating an appetite for the Word is misery, is problems, is difficulty. I love that passage in the Word of God that says, No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to men. And with that, the Word offers a way of escape. If you are ensnared in temptation, this Word is powerful to give you a way of escape. No sin besets you this morning, even though you may find it stubborn as it clings to you and calls out to you, but no sin besets you that the Word of God can't strengthen you to fight. No character defect is so well-worn, has not grooved its way into your soul and heart in such a way that the Word of God can't come and fill in the cracks and the brokenness which it creates. No relationship is so far damaged that the Word of God can't repair it. If we don't believe those things, we might as well stop talking about the Bible as a holy book. If a person doesn't believe that, they better not preach this Word. Because what I find in the Word of God is the constant promise that those who need help and relief from the weight and the brokenness of their sins can find it in Christ and in His Word and His truth. So whatever difficulty you have, I want you to take up this phrase. The Word of God, which performs its work in you who believe and know this morning. If you take this Word, it will build you. It will sanctify you. It's able to transform and renew your mind. And it'll do that as you bring your faith to it and ask God through the Lord Jesus Christ to cause that word
which is living and active and razor sharp. And he'll take that word and he'll change your life. Father, we thank you this morning for the testimony of the power of your word at work. Our hearts are so encouraged this morning to know that there is strength, there is a spiritual resource outside of ourselves, which by your gracious operation through your Spirit can bring real change to our life. We thank you for the bold testimony of the Thessalonians and their endurance of tribulation and sufferings for Christ and how they own the cross. May it speak powerfully to us this morning. And we thank you for that that, uh, beautiful illustration of the power of your word at work to sustain in the midst of difficulty. May we all this morning know the joy of that and believe in it. And take all of our faith and trust in it in order that you may do your sanctifying work in us who believe. So, Father, cause your word now to run swiftly in our lives in the life of this congregation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.